0: Bird brain. The Oxford English Dictionary defines bird brain as an annoyingly stupid or shallow person. Other definitions include words like foolish and scatterbrained, but to think that birds are stupid is a mistake and an insult to birds. A lot of birds, particularly those in the corvid family, which includes crows, ravens and blue jays, are actually incredibly smart, showing intelligence that is equal to great apes and really not that far behind us humans. And as you're about to learn, some birds will not only remember your face, but they hold grudges. So you might want to be careful not to offend a Corvid, or you might find yourself in the middle of an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Let's take a closer look at the birds in the Corvid family. Hello, Wild Wanderers. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is Dispatches from the Forest.
1: Mm-mm. 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 Mm-mm.
0: So today I'm talking about the birds in the corvid family, more commonly called the crow family. There's about 120 species that fall into this family, and they're some of the smartest birds on the planet. Now, if you're an avid bird watcher or a bird snob, you probably don't get real excited about spotting most corvids. Maybe if they had a pretty song, it would be different, but as you're going to hear, that's not really what corvids are known for. In fact, generally, they're kind of loud and obnoxious, which to be honest, just makes me like them more. Although corvids won't sing you to sleep, it's just the opposite. They would make really good alarm clocks. They make up for it by being incredibly intelligent and bold. They're a fascinating group of birds. Today I'm gonna focus on just a few of the corvid species, some of the more common ones. And by the end of this podcast, I think you'll hesitate before you call someone a bird brain. Generally speaking, members of the corvid family are medium to large in size with strong beaks and feet. They tend to be opportunistic eaters, they're omnivores. They'll eat seeds, berries, fruit, carrion, small mammals, insects, in addition to sometimes eating the eggs or nestlings of other birds. As you can imagine, this habit has led them to at best being disliked by a lot of people and at worst being hunted and trapped. The way I see it, fish gotta swim, birds gotta eat. It's the circle of life, it's just nature being nature. Let's start with the Clark's Nutcracker. This bird was first observed in 1805 by William Clark, yeah, of Lewis and Clark fame. It was actually one of the few live specimens brought back by the expedition. The Clark's Nutcracker has a pale gray body and black wings and is about the same size as its cousin, the blue jay. Its call is similar to a blue jay's also. Now these are mountain birds, specifically the Rocky Mountains, and they're closely associated with species of pine trees that produce large seeds at altitudes of between 3 and 10,000 feet. Like other corvids, Clark's nutcrackers are omnivores, but they subsist primarily on pine nuts. They have a pouch under their tongue capable of holding between 50 and 150 seeds, depending on the size of the seed. And that lets them transport seeds more easily. During the summer, they collect and store seeds, mainly in the ground, in caches that average between 3 and 4 seeds. Now over a single season, one bird may cache as many as 98,000 seeds. Now I'm no mathematician, but at three to four seeds per cache, that equals somewhere between 24,000 and 32,000 caches. Now what makes the Clark's Nutcracker remarkable is that they remember where all of these caches are, even nine months later, and even when they're buried under several feet of snow. I'm lucky if I can remember where I just set my phone down five minutes ago. Now, like most animals that cash food for the winter, Clark's Nutcrackers routinely store more than they need. And this is an insurance policy against loss to other animals. Any seeds that are not retrieved have a good chance of germinating and thus help maintain the habitat that the Clark's Nutcracker depends on. If you spend any time west of the Mississippi River, the black-billed magpie might be familiar to you. Slightly smaller than a crow, but with a long tail. They're primarily black and white, but they have iridescent blue-green flashes in the wing and tail. They're actually quite beautiful. Black-billed magpies prefer open habitat with clumps of trees, and that means they've adapted well to both rural farmlands and suburban areas. It's one of the few North American birds that builds a domed nest. Magpies were also encountered by Lewis and Clark, who documented that they would take food from their hands and even enter their tents to steal food. Incidentally, a group of magpies is called a mischief, a mischief of magpies. Historically, magpies were associated with bison herds. They would land on the backs of the bison and eat ticks. In the absence of bison, the bird performs this same service for domestic cattle. They're also frequently seen on the ground eating beetles and grasshoppers, worms, small rodents, in addition to, of course, seeds and fruit and grain. They're also known to gather in large flocks at carrion. A lot of suburban songbird lovers dislike magpies because they have a reputation for stealing eggs, but studies have shown that eggs make up only a small proportion of what magpies feed on during the reproductive season, and their impact on songbird populations is negligible. But again, because of their egg-stealing reputation, during the first half of the 20th century, black-billed magpies were considered detrimental to game bird populations. They were also thought to be detrimental to domestic livestock, since they were sometimes seen pecking at sores on cattle. And they were systematically trapped or shot because of this. Bounties of one cent per egg or two cents per head were offered in many states. In Idaho, the death toll eventually amounted to an estimated 150,000 magpies. In 1933, 1,033 magpies were shot in Washington's Okanagan Valley by two teams of bounty hunters. At two cents per bird, in today's currency, that would be nearly $21,000. Many magpies also died from eating poison set out for wolves, coyotes, and other predators. One of the interesting things about magpies, and this behavior has also been observed in crows, is that they hold funerals for their dead. When one magpie discovers a dead magpie, it will begin calling loudly to attract other magpies. Up to 40 birds may gather, all calling loudly. In some cases, individuals have been observed preening the deceased bird or laying pieces of grass near it. This may last for 10 to 15 minutes before the mischief of magpies disperses. Are they grieving a lost flock member? Well, some researchers have suggested that this behavior may have other less sentimental functions. It may be an attempt to move up in the quote-unquote pecking order. A dead flock member means an opening in the social hierarchy and an opportunity for a lower bird to move up a notch. Or it may be an attempt to assess danger, trying to determine if there's a threat in the vicinity of the dead bird that should be avoided. What's interesting to note, though, is that neither magpies nor crows react this way to dead birds of other species, only to one of their own. You would think that if it were looking for danger, species would be of little importance. Now, I know we should always be cautious about ascribing human emotions and motivations to animals. But I also think that it would be arrogant to assume that animals don't have an emotional life, that they're somehow incapable of emotional responses. It has been shown that many corvids and other birds like parrots have intelligence and reasoning skills on par with great apes, so why not emotions too? Ultimately, I guess the real question is, does it matter why they gather? Whether to assess potential danger, evaluate a social void, or mourn the loss of one of their own, any one of these reasons highlights the intelligence of these birds.
1: Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more.
0: Hopefully, you recognize the opening verse of Edgar Allan's famous poem, "The Raven." Poe's poem seems to set the tone for our image of the raven.
1: Then this ebony bird, beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore.
0: Because of its jet black plumage, croaking call, (coughs) and diet that's heavily carrion, the raven is often associated with loss and ill omen. A group of ravens is known as a conspiracy, a treachery, an unkindness, which I'll tap into the darker imagery of the raven. But I prefer a rave, a rave of ravens. That, that sounds more like a party. In Poe's poem, the raven symbolizes the narrator's grief over the loss of his love, Lenore. As a talking bird, the raven also represents prophecy and insight. Ravens feature prominently in many Native American myths, generally appearing as a creator or trickster. In Norse mythology, Odin was associated with ravens. The raven's brain is one of the largest of any bird in relation to its body size. They display an aptitude for problem-solving, as well as other cognitive processes, such as imitation and insight. Biologists and linguists have argued that ravens are one of only four known animals who have demonstrated displacement, the capacity to communicate about objects or events that are distant in space or time from the communication. The other three animals that have demonstrated displacement are bees, ants, and humans. For example, sub-adult ravens roost together at night, but usually forage alone during the day. But, if one discovers a large carcass being guarded by a pair of adult ravens, the unmated raven will return to the roost and tell the others. The next day, a flock of unmated ravens will fly to the carcass and chase off the adults. Linguists say that displacement, this ability to communicate about distant objects or events, may have been the most important event in the evolution of human language, and ravens are the only other vertebrate that we know of to share this ability with us humans. An experiment designed to evaluate insight and problem solving in ravens involved a piece of meat attached to a string hanging from a perch. To reach the food, the bird needed to stand on the perch, pull the string up a little at a time, and step on the loops to gradually shorten the string. Four out of five ravens eventually succeeded, and the transition from no success, meaning ignoring the food or just yanking at the string, to consistently pulling up the meat occurred with no demonstrable trial and error learning, which implies that the ravens can encounter a novel problem and devise a solution. Again, the ravens aptitude for problem solving individually and learning from each other demonstrates a flexible capacity for intelligent insight that's unusual among non-human animals. In the wild, ravens have been observed calling wolves to the site of dead animals. The wolves open the carcass, which leaves the scraps more accessible to the birds. They watch where other ravens bury their food and remember the location of each other's food caches so they can steal from them. This type of theft occurs so regularly that ravens will fly extra distances from a food source to find a better hiding place. They've also been observed pretending to make a cache without actually depositing the food, presumably to deceive any other raven that might be looking. Younger ravens have a reputation for caching shiny objects such as pebbles, pieces of metal, and golf balls. No one really knows why, but one theory is that they do it to impress other ravens. Other research indicates that juvenile ravens are deeply curious about all new things and that they retain an attraction to bright, round objects because they resemble bird eggs. Juvenile ravens are also among the most playful of bird species. Ravens are known for spectacular aerobatic displays, such as flying in loops or interlocking talons with, with each other in flight. They've been observed sliding down snowbanks, apparently just for fun, something many of us can relate to. Heck, I'm 50 years old and I still enjoy sledding after a good snowfall. They even engage in games with other species like wolves. In his book, Of Wolves and Men, author Barry Lopez talks about how ravens will often pester a resting wolf until it chases it, the raven staying just out of the wolf's reach, which appears to be a game enjoyed by both species. He calls it raven tag. Ravens are also one of only a few wild animals who make their own toys. They've been observed breaking off twigs and playing with them socially. Now, you probably already know that a group of crows is known as a murder, a murder of crows. Now, this moniker dates back to medieval times when crows feasted on dead soldiers lying in battlefields. Kind of a brutal image and kind of unfair because it clearly wasn't the crows doing the killing. Like ravens, in Native American mythology, intelligence is usually the prominent feature of the crow. And it's a reputation they come by honestly. The American crow is one of only a few species of bird that has been observed not only using tools to obtain food, but modifying tools. According to some studies, crows have the intelligence of a seven-year-old. Scientists subjected six wild crows to a battery of tests designed to challenge their understanding of causal relationships. These tasks involved water displacement and were basically a variation of the Aesop's fable in which a thirsty crow drops stones to raise the level of water in a pitcher. The crows had to determine how to obtain floating food rewards by depositing heavy objects into water-filled tubes. They demonstrated the ability to choose objects that would sink rather than float, solid objects rather than hollow objects, and they selected high water level tubes over low water level tubes, which shows a preference for the tube that will get them the food with the least amount of work, as well as choosing a water-filled tube over one filled with sand. The crows filled the tubes with enough rocks or other heavy items to bring the food within reach. In another study, a crow named Betty at Oxford University made a hook by bending a wire in order to reach food at the end of a tube. In another, a neurobiologist in Germany trained two crows to peck at either a yes or no target to indicate whether they had detected a faint light, proof of analytical thought more associated with monkeys. But in what I think is the most interesting study, researchers showed that crows can not only recognize faces, They hold a grudge, and they tell their friends, and they hold a grudge too. Crows have each other's backs. In fact, they seem to have a good sense that every person is unique and that they need to approach each of us differently. So here's how it went down. In 2006, pairs of researchers netted, banded, and released seven wild crows. The researchers wore identical masks, sometimes with a hat, during the process. They referred to this mask as the dangerous mask, although its expression was neutral. During the banding process, which lasted no more than 20 minutes, the researchers were visible not only to the captured birds, but to other crows in the area. Over the next nearly three years, researchers would periodically walk a route that included the territory the crows were trapped in, either wearing the dangerous mask, no mask, or a neutral mask, and then record the responses of the crows in that area. Now, prior to the trapping, researchers had walked these same routes wearing the dangerous mask and noted that less than 5% of the crows in an area would scold someone wearing that mask. Immediately after the trapping, within the first two weeks, that number increased to around 26%. 15 months later, that figure was up to 30%. Three years later, with no additional interaction with the crows since, the number of scolding crows had grown to 66%. Even 14 years later, one of the original authors noted that crows will aggressively scold someone wearing the threatening mask, which suggests that the birds are not only holding tightly to a negative association, they are obviously communicating to each other about the humans and passing on the knowledge of the threat, not only between peers, but down through the generations. The last group of corvids that I wanna talk about today are the jays. There are a lot of different species of jay, so I'm just gonna touch on a couple and then talk a little more in depth about one of my favorites and one of the most common, the blue jay. The gray jay or Canada jay lives in the Rocky Mountains, northern US and Canada. Also known as the camp robber for its boldness in stealing food. Unlike most other birds, it nests in the winter, building a well-insulated nest on the south side of trees. Since it nests earlier than other birds, it spends the summer finding and caching food, up to 1,000 caches per day in the more northerly part of its range. Again, it remembers where it puts all these caches, but it uses a sticky saliva to cache the food above the snow line, and then cover it with lichen or a piece of bark. Pinion jays look very similar to our eastern bluebird and live in the southwest. Like gray jays, they cache food, but in this case, mated pairs know the location of each other's hiding spots, again, demonstrating that they're communicating. Stellar's jays are another jay of the west and southwest. They're very distinctive, with a body and tail that looks like a blue jay, but a black head and a large crest. Stellar's jays are noted mimics. They're able to mimic the calls of hawks, the sounds of other animals, and even mechanical objects. My favorite Jay, though, is the Blue Jay. I love Blue Jays. I love their calls. There's just something about that call that sounds like the wild. I think untamed is a great way to describe it. Even sitting in my backyard, hearing Blue Jays makes me feel like I'm in the wilderness. I think of blue jays as the tattletales of the forest. They, along with other corvids like crows and magpies, will mob other birds or predators. They'll gather in a group around it and make a whole lot of noise. In fact, a group of blue jays is known as a band, a party, a cast, or a scold, a scold of blue jays. If you hear a scold of blue jays and take the time to track them down, they will usually reveal something else of interest, an owl, a hawk, or some other predator. When we lived in Wyoming, magpies and blue jays would mob the local owls, sometimes in the trees right next to our house. They would also mob our cats when they sat in the open window on a nice day. Now, completely unrelated to their intelligence, but a fun fact I like to share about blue jays is that they're not, in fact, blue. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that I'm either a damn dirty liar or completely delusional because not only can you plainly see that a blue jay is blue, it even has blue right in its name. But when I say it's not blue, what I mean is that there's no blue pigment in a blue jay's feathers. And actually this is true for any blue feather. The blue color that we see is a result of the way the light reflects off the inner structure of the feather. Red and yellow feathers actually have pigments that give them those colors. If you take a blue jay feather and backlight it, you will see that it's actually gray. Like crows and ravens, blue jays appear in Native American mythology, frequently as a clever trickster, which, again, is a reputation they come by honestly. Like the stellar's jay, they're excellent mimics, often mimicking the calls of hawks. I witnessed this recently in my own yard. I have red-shouldered hawks in my woods, and one morning I heard one calling nearby. But when I finally tracked down the source, what I found was a blue jay sitting in the top of a tree doing a near-perfect imitation. Now, sometimes they do this as a warning to other birds that there's a hawk nearby, and sometimes they seem to do this as a trick. If other birds think there's a hawk in the area, They may go elsewhere, which leaves the blue jay and all the food for itself. They can also mimic cats and other sounds. Next time you're on YouTube, search for blue jay imitating cat. You won't be disappointed. Blue jays, like other corvids, have also been observed using tools to access food. In one study, food was placed just out of reach of captive blue jays. Some of the jays began to tear strips of paper from the bottom of their cages, crumple them with their feet then use it to rake the food close enough to eat. The same birds also made use of other items, like paper clips, bag ties, feathers, or pieces of straw to accomplish the same thing. What's amazing, though, is that other jays in the captive colony learned how to do the same thing just by watching. Well, band of wild wanderers, this brings us to the end of this episode. So remember, be extra nice to crows, and the next time someone calls you a... Bird brain tell them thanks. Birds are pretty smart after all. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave a like and follow so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. Also remember that if you're enjoying Dispatches from the Forest, you can support the podcast by heading over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Dispatches from the Forest and becoming a patron. And if you have a message for me, I can be reached by email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast without express written permission.